Let's ask God to help us with his word. Our true and living God, we do confess the Bible is your word written. But we know without the powerful work of your spirit in our hearts, it just remains letters on a page, a dead word. And so we do pray, gracious Father, for that work of your spirit that would shine the light of your truth into our hearts so that we would know Jesus, know what it is to trust him, and we would be changed so that we can live lives as his followers. And please help me now to speak your word truthfully and clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, believing is what we do, isn't it? Christians are people who have faith, who believe in the living God by having faith in, believing in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the way people outside the church think of Christians as well, don't they? Uh, We, for them, are the believers, the people of faith. And we make great claims for faith. Paul said to the Philippian jailer, believe in, have faith in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Or as we heard the author of Hebrews say, God has said that his righteous ones will live by faith. And in verse 39, that it is those who have faith who preserve their souls who live forever. Faith in Christ, we say, is the way to life. So what does this faith, this faith in the God who's revealed himself in the history of Israel and then in his son Jesus, this faith that saves, look like? It's an important question and you see its importance as soon as you ask yourself, is that my faith? Am I one of those who have faith and so will preserve their souls? That's a question of eternal consequence. And it would be sad, wouldn't it, to be deceived, to think you have faith in Jesus, but then find you don't have anything that God would recognise as faith. Having given us a brief and tantalising characterisation of faith in verse 1 of chapter 11, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, our author has gone on to flesh out that characterisation in the lives of the Old Testament saints who were commended for their faith, witnessed by God to be people of faith. He's going to show us faith by what faith does in the lives of those who have faith. And so last week in verses 1 to 7, we saw how fundamental faith in God is, orienting us to reality when we believe the revelation of God's creating. Oh, faith is the means we saw of being reckoned righteous. We saw that in righteous Abel. And the absolute necessity for all relationship with God, for without faith it is impossible to please God. And faith is what spares us from judgment by moving us to heed God's warnings, as the experience of Noah testified to. Now, in verses 8 and following, our author shifts his focus to Abraham and his family. For Abraham is in Scripture the preeminent example of someone who had faith in the promise. 
For it was to Abraham that the promises that form the foundation of the life of God's people were given. Promises then repeated to Isaac, his son, and to Jacob, his grandson. Promises that the New Testament tell us come to final fulfilment in Christ. It's in the life of Abraham and his family that we'll be able to see what it is to have faith in what is hoped for. For the promise of God creates hope, gives the content of hope. And we will see what it is to have conviction about what is unseen. For promises always concern the future, and the future is unseen. So we're going to look now at what faith in the promise of God does. But we're not looking out of curiosity. It's to understand what saving faith is and to ask whether this faith is my faith, is your faith. For Christians are people with a promise from God too. Promises of present forgiveness, of now being included in God's people, those who know and can be assured of his love. Promises of future resurrection and welcome, a place in the city of God, the Jerusalem of the new heaven and earth. So as you're listening to Abraham's faith, ask, is this my faith? Oh, and if you see that in some things you fall short, ask, where do I need to grow and change? What stops my faith from being the faith of Abraham? By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. The faith that saves is the faith that obeys the call of God, the call of God which changes everything in your life. We mustn't minimise the cost to Abraham of God's call. In Haran he had family, he knew the customs, he had status and the protection of citizenship, he belonged. Now some of you know the cost of leaving homeland and family and the hazards and difficulty of making that long journey of being a stranger. Yet your journey was informed and planned. You chose the destination. What the text stresses is that Abraham went, he obeyed, not knowing where he was going. You see, faith obeys without negotiation or demanding to be fully informed, simply because faith trusts the God who commands. So how much do you have to know before you obey the call of God on your life? Because you see, Christians are people who have heard the call of God. Jesus calling us, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake We'll say that Jesus calls. Oh yes, he does also tell us to count the cost of responding to his call. Repeating that call, he says in Luke uh, 14, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost? 
We ought, says Jesus, to know the cost of following him. And we also, of course, ought to know the cost of not obeying his call. He who seeks to save his life will lose it. And Jesus is clear, the cost is everything, verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Following Jesus, trusting him, obeying him, is actually an all or nothing thing. You give all to be Jesus' follower, or you are not his follower at all. Now that's how Christian faith starts, entrusting all to Jesus, and that is how it continues. Having responded to Jesus' call, it does not, when it hears the command of Jesus, make obedience dependent, conditional on knowing how it will work out. For we have the promise of Jesus for life. That's the goal of our following him, and we trust him. To make obedience to Jesus dependent on you knowing how it will work out is to substitute trust in yourself or trust in your saviour. It's actually the death of faith in Jesus. So think about some of the things Jesus calls his followers to. He calls you, say, to only marry a Christian. Will you obey that only if you can be sure it won't leave you single? He calls you to forgive. Will you obey that only if you know it won't mean you'll be hurt again? He calls you to store up treasure in heaven. Will you obey that only if you know you'll still be comfortably off? He calls you to keep your word. Will you obey only if you know it won't cost you? He calls you to make disciples. Will you obey only if you know where it will take you? Are you making Jesus' command justify itself before the bar of your self-interest of what seems reasonable to expect from you? Faith obeys without knowing all the details about how obedience will work out. And as Jesus' commands embrace every relationship of every day, you can actually practice that faith, strengthen that faith in daily obedience so that you can obey the next day, trusting Jesus, and obeying in the little things of everyday life, be ready for obedience in the big things when you are tested, not knowing how it will work out, just knowing that the Jesus who calls you is faithful. Faith keeps you following to the end. Faith obeys without all the details. And faith can live with the not yet. By faith Abraham went to live in the land of promises in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. God had promised Abraham in Genesis 12, yes, then again in Genesis 13 and 15, the whole of the land of Canaan. Canaan was Abraham's by divine gift. But Abraham in his life never possessed it beyond a burial cave. And that was true of his son and grandson to whom God repeated that promise of land. But Abraham didn't fret. He was content to live in the land of promise, it says, as in a foreign land, 
as an alien, experiencing the impermanence of tent dwelling, the lack of citizenship rights and belonging. Why? Because he knew God had promised him something better. A permanent belonging in the city of God, in the presence of God, brought into being by God, the builder and maker. The promise of God to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob was first of all about relationship with the living God, that God would be their God. A promise that our Lord says is with the living. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, says our Lord. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And so they knew that the promise of Canaan was itself just a sign of the greater promise, the promise of living in God's presence. See, faith recognises the greatness of the promise of relationship with God, of peace with God, and holds out for its fullness. And that faith meant that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob could live with the impermanence, could live patiently while they waited for God to fulfil his promise. So is that your faith? Faith that waits patiently? Oh yes, enjoying now some of what God has promised, forgiveness, the gift of the Spirit, peace with him, but recognising that God has promised you so much more in Christ. That day when our bodies are transformed to be like his glorious body, when God wipes every tears for every tear from our eyes and we see his face. Do you recognise that God has promised you so much more and so you wait patiently for it? You see, such a faith protects you from the con artists, those who tell you that being a Christian is all about the now. You know, health now, wealth now, power now, glory now, who want you to settle for so much less than what God has promised his people, who don't expect too much of God, but too little. Oh, and that faith means you can endure the times of trouble and hardship, God says, will be the experience of God's people in this life. For your sake, says Paul, we are being killed all the day long. You'll be able to endure those times of persecution that the first hearers of Hebrews were experiencing with loss of property, loss of rights, abuse and scorn. Enduring, because like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, believers in Jesus, know, Hebrews 13, that here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. We hope for so much much more, and by faith we wait for it patiently. And faith is the means by which God will bring us to the fulfilment of what he has promised us. By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Now you may remember that story. When God had called Abraham from Haran when he was 75 years old, God had promised to make the childless Abraham a great nation. The years had ticked by, and then when he was 86, he had had a son, Ishmael, through Hagar, the slave woman. But then when he was about 99, God appeared to him and promised 
that he would have a son through Sarah, his wife, a son who would be his heir, who would inherit the promise and relationship with God that Abraham had. In chapter 18 of Genesis, we see that God had repeated that promise in the hearing of Sarah. Now she laughed, we're told, at this improbable possibility, but had been asked to believe that nothing was too hard for the Lord. Verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord, says God. And Hebrews says she believed. She considered him faithful who had promised. In God's mercy, her faith in the God who promised became the means of the fulfilment of the promise. She gave birth to a son, Isaac. And by the time of the writing of Hebrews, the descendants of Abraham, both physical and more importantly, his spiritual descendants, were as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. And God got the glory for doing what was humanly impossible in keeping his word. Now, Sarah's faith that nothing is too hard for the Lord is actually the faith of the believer in Christ. That's right, isn't it? Jesus has promised us what is humanly impossible to raise us from the dead. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this, says our Lord, that he can do what is impossible? Yet in God's mercy, for there's nothing that earns God's favour in our faith, our faith in Jesus as the Son who has all authority, for whom nothing is too hard, is the means by which God will fulfil that promise of resurrection to us and bring honour and glory to his Son. But faith as the means of the fulfilment of the promise doesn't just apply to the resurrection, doesn't it? God, for example, has given us a promise about his word that it won't return to him empty, but will accomplish his purpose for it. Our faith in that promise, seen in faithfully sowing that word, the gospel word, speaking it to many, is the means by which we will see it fulfilled, see it saving amongst us. We don't sow because we see results. We sow because of the promise. Yet where the word is sown diligently and actively, we do see more being saved. And God has given us great promises about prayer, that God will hear our prayers. Our faith in the God who made those promises, which means we act, we pray, is the means by which God will fulfil those promises to us. We don't pray because we see prayers answered in the time and way we ask. We pray because of the promise. And we reckon him faithful who promised. And in God's faithfulness, we see him fulfilling that promise. In God's mercy, our faith in the promise is the means he has chosen of fulfilling his promise. And that faith is also the source of our identity in this world. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles in the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. 
If they'd been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob all died without ever being a great nation, without ever possessing the land of promise. Oh, they'd had experienced some fulfilments, small fulfilments like the birth of Isaac, but they hadn't come to the fullness of what was promised. Oh, they did, says our author, glimpse that from a distance. Remember that Jesus says, Abraham rejoiced to see his day. They glimpsed that fulfilment. But their own experience on this earth was of not receiving. They died, though, in faith, expecting God to do what he has promised in his own time. And so they confessed, as Abraham did when he was negotiating for the burial plot for Sarah, that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, sojourners and foreigners amongst those whom they lived. Now, strangers and exiles are political terms. It speaks of people living away from what was called their patris, their homeland. People who have no citizenship rights where they are, but have them elsewhere, from where they belong, that homeland. But what, says our author, was the homeland that Abraham and the others were thinking of when they confessed themselves to be aliens and exiles? It wasn't, he says where they'd come from, Haran, where they still had relatives or Ur, because they could have gone back there. No, he says, their hearts were set on. They desired, and that's a a strong word of longing and striving for, they desired a better homeland. That is a heavenly one. Faith in the promise meant they knew where they belonged, living in the presence of the true and living, the faithful and kind God. And so faith in the promise gave them their identity in this world. Because of the promise, they could characterise themselves in Canaan as aliens and strangers. And so they were saying they didn't take their values from the society around them, no, but from their citizenship in heaven. They didn't take their sense of worth or of their rights from the world around them, but from their citizenship in heaven. They did not take a conviction about their future from the world around them, but from their citizenship in heaven. Faith in the promise meant they knew who they were in the world and where they were going all through their lives, right until their death. And that is a great gift. Knowing who you are and where you're going is a precious gift. It guides your behaviour. It gives you a sense of self that protects you from the lies and the abuse of others. And so if you're here a believer, do you take your identity in this world, not from the society around you, but from the promise of God? Well, we have the same destination, that heavenly city, the same hope, the same promise as Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Believing the promises of God, do you know yourself to be an alien and stranger in this world? Because you know yourself to be the beloved child of God, a brother of our Lord Jesus, a citizen of heaven and a co-heir with him. However the world characterises you. You see, we can invest this world with too much permanence and end up being directed by fear 
fear of not being accepted, fear of loss of privilege, fear of loss of political influence. You see, directed by fear, we can fall into behaviour that is self-interested, self-protective, that denies that our citizenship is in the kingdom of the Son who humbled himself to love. Do you know, you are more useful to your neighbour if you live, believer, as you are, an alien and exile, taking your values, your behaviour, from your citizenship of the heavenly city, learning to live in faith like Christ, who loved his enemies and did good to all. Faith in the promise gives you that precious thing. It gives you your identity. And so is your faith seen in living out that identity because you are longing for, striving for the heavenly city God has prepared for you. And the author adds what is extraordinarily gracious of God. Therefore God, he says, is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a city. Hear that. God won't be embarrassed by the expectations of anyone who has believed his promise, he will deliver in full. He will, in fact, have glory in being called the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, for there will come a day when all will see that he has done for them all that he promised and more than they could expect. Oh, and he will have glory in being called the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, the God and Father of all Jesus' followers, for he will disappoint not one of them. He will do for us, believers, all that he has promised and more than we can expect. And this faith that obeys, that lives with the not yet, that is the means of fulfilment and the source of identity, this faith is in God himself, not just in his gifts. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Now this is perhaps the most famous of the stories associated with Abraham, Abraham's offering of Isaac in obedience to God's command. Isaac the child of the promise, who had brought laughter to his home, to his wife. And yet after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And notice it's stressed that it is through Isaac, his only son, that God had said the promises Abraham had received from God would be realised. Our author stresses that by quoting Genesis uh, 21. Uh, there, in Genesis 21, Abraham was told by God to do what Sarah had asked, to send away his other son, Ishmael. From then on, Isaac was his only son the only son through whom he could become the father of many nations, the only son through whom God's relationship with Abraham's descendants would be continued. What a request. This command went against his natural affection 
for his loved son. This command threatened the fulfilment of the promise of God, the promise that had determined the whole shape of his life, the very reason for his being in and staying in Palestine. Yet, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Without argument or hesitation. Why? Well, he considered, it says in Hebrews 11.19, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. That's right. You may have skipped over Genesis 22 verse 5 in your reading before, but look, there it says, Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. It's not as clear as it is in Hebrew and Greek, but it is absolutely clear. Abraham is saying, I and the boy will come again to you. We will come again to you. This was the God in whom Abraham believed, God who could give life to the dead, God whom he had already experienced giving life to the deadness of Sarah's womb, life when he was as good as dead. Abraham thought that Reconciling the command and promise of God was God's problem, not his. His own path was clear, to trust his God and to do what he said. To trust God, to give back what he took away in faithfulness to his promise, trusting that there was no limit to God's might, that nothing was too hard for him. Oh, and Abraham knew that the promise involved Isaac. It was Isaac through whom God had said his descendants would be named. One way or other, Abraham knew the boy would be okay, for God had made a promise. Is anything too hard for the Lord? God had said to Sarah. And Abraham believed that nothing was too hard. He could trust him to keep his promise to his child. Can you? Abraham's trust was in God himself for the realisation of what was promised. It wasn't Isaac who could fulfil the promise, but God alone. His faith wasn't in the gift, in the means God used for fulfilling the promise to him, but God himself. Our lives, your life itself, is actually the greatest gift God has given you, isn't it? the gift through which we will come to what is promised. But at the outset, remember, Christ tells us that this is what we must offer. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Who does not renounce all he has cannot be my disciple. We offer we offer all our lives, trusting Christ to raise us from the dead, believing the gospel that he has triumphed over death. In faith we offer all the good God has given us in his kindness and faithfulness, knowing that he can restore what he takes away. 
trusting God. When he calls on us, we can leave it to him to reconcile his promises with his command and know our path is clear. These all died in faith, our author said, and so now he turns to the ending, the dying of those Old Testament believers to show us that faith sustains hope in the promise and acts in hope right to the end and in so doing transmits hope by pointing to the promise. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, <coughs> Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Isaac was old and blind when he blessed Jacob and Esau. Our author doesn't draw attention to Jacob's trickery or Esau's anger, as the Genesis text does, just to the fact of the blessing, the blessing of covenant inheritance to Jacob, the blessing of eventual freedom to Esau. That Isaac maintained his blessing, even in the face of his family's dysfunction, a dysfunction that could so easily tear them apart, was actually a sign that his faith was in God. God's promise to Abraham and himself of descendants and relationship, of faith in God, not in the recipients of the blessing. Oh, and Jacob, even though he was in Egypt, confidently blessed Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph's sons, with relationship and fruitfulness, trusting God. And then there is Joseph. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. Made mention is more literally remembered. Joseph remembered what God had said to Abraham in Genesis 15, that their time in Egypt would end and God would bring them up to the land he had promised Abraham's descendants. They shall come back here in the fourth generation. That hope was so real for Joseph that he gave instructions about his bones. In faith, he made his bones a continual reminder to his descendants of the promise of God, a promise that would be their hope, even as their circumstances worsened in Egypt. Faith in God, in the gospel, is confident even in death for it knows that death is no barrier to God keeping his promises to us. Even as our human possibilities narrow to the point of no possibility, faith in God's promise confidently looks forward to the fulfilment of the promise, maintains hope, and so testifies to God's faithfulness, gives proof of the unseen to those around, gives them reason to hope in the promise of God. And so, believer, ask yourself, will you die confident in the promise of God, testifying by your hope to his faithfulness? Will your last words share that hope? Like Charles Wesley, will you say, happy with my latest breath, I may but gasp his name, preach him to all and cry in death, behold, behold the Lamb. Well, this is the faith that obtains life. Faith which obeys without the details, for it trusts the God who commands his people. Faith that lives patiently with the not yet. 
Faith that trusting the promise will become the means of the fulfilment of the promise. Faith that gives us our identity in the years of our pilgrimage to the heavenly city. Faith that is always in God himself, the God we have come to know in his son Jesus, not in God's gifts. Faith that dies with hope and so transmits hope. This is the faith that honours God, the God for whom nothing is impossible, who raises the dead, who can be trusted to know the way for us to go so that we come to all that he has promised us, the God who is faithful to perform all that he has promised and who has prepared that heavenly city, life in his presence forever for those who trust him. This is the faith that honours our God, the God we have come to have faith in when we believed the gospel, the Christ has died for our sins and risen again. Christ, Christ who came to fulfil that promise to Abraham that in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Christ who has demonstrated his power over death. Christ who has assured us that trusting him we can be certain of God's steadfast and faithful love forever. Christ who has promised us life in leaving all to follow him. I want this to be my faith. Is it your faith? Because it is the faith that our Saviour deserves. Keep your eyes on him and be amongst those who have faith and live. Let's pray. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, we do pray that in your mercy your word would be active in our lives, stirring us up to have faith in Jesus, the faith that obeys, the faith that waits patiently yet confidently, the faith through which you will fulfil your promises to us, the faith that knows itself to be your child, the faith whose trust is in you, not in your gifts, and the faith that will testify to your faithfulness to the end and die in hope. Make this faith ours, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.